Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Christian Espinoza. He is the author of The Smartest Person in the Room, The Root, Cause and Solution for Cybersecurity. He's also the CEO of Alpine Security. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Glad to be here. Now, just right off the bat, there might be, might be people thinking, well, this podcast is called Being Human and we're talking about <laughs> cybersecurity. But this is a very human story. Uh, Yeah, do you just want to sort of paint in broad strokes what this book is about, Christian? Yeah, sure. The book is, it's about why we're losing the cybersecurity war, from my perspective. Uh, There's a lot of emphasis on technological solutions, you know, new firewalls, artificial intelligence, and, and processes and frameworks. But the bottom line is, and the root issue of the problem are the people in the industry. Uh, the highly technical people, which tend to lean towards a certain personality type where there's a belief that if you have like a high IQ, it's okay if you have no EQ or a very low EQ or basically no you know, people skills. So that inhibits our ability to collaborate, to communicate, and to ultimately perform better and defend our networks better. Right. Um, yeah. So this is a people story in terms of how do we defend our IT, our infrastructure, our data in a in a better way. Exactly. And you and you say mm-hmm. losing the war. So uh, when you say losing the war, so what your your perspective right now is that the cyber cr- criminals are winning. I suppose my sense is they're kind of being kept at bay for the most part, but but you think we're losing. Uh, yeah, I think cyber criminals are are totally winning. Uh, every day, if you you know you hear the, on the news, there's a new breach, a new data breach, and just when we think there can't be a bigger one, there can't be more records stolen or more information stolen, there's another one that comes out. Like you know, like a month ago or three weeks ago, Solar Winds breach came out. That was a massive breach. So it's always something coming out and you know tomorrow there'll probably be something bigger so that to me is a pretty big indicator that we're not doing well defending our networks and keeping the uh, criminals at bay right and i i think may people may have heard a sort of passing reference to this solar winds thing yeah can you just fill people in on what happened there why it's so such a, a big deal yeah so the solar winds attack um was a supply chain attack basically and the, the the biggest impact of the solar winds attack is a lot of organizations use solar winds to monitor the health of their environments, to monitor uh, the the systems on their environment. Uh, and this included like Department of Defense organizations in the United States and government organizations. And what happened with the attack is the solar wind software went out to do an update. So normally software updates itself periodically, like Windows update. And the idea is the update is going to, you know, patch the software, fix problems and make it more secure. But when this update occurred, it actually updated the software with some malicious code. So the, when I say a supply chain tack, this update infrastructure is what was compromised, which is a, a very eye-opening thing because we tend to believe like, if I'm going to go to my Windows update and patch my system, that that's a trusted entity I'm going to. But that's compromised in my you know, quote, update to patch the system is actually installing malicious software. And that's basically what happened. Uh, and because SolarWinds is deployed so globally across many industries and many uh, government organizations, it was a big deal. Right. And and what was the ultimate, Im- so so this attack happened, you know, what, what were the breaches? You know, what was the impact ultimately? Uh, the impact it depended on when, when it was caught. Like we had several clients that had uh, were were affected by the solar winds breach, and we were able to contain that. But what happened if we weren't able to contain it is the the attack could basically spread in, on a, your internal network and compromise most of your systems uh, at an administrator level. So when that happens, the attacker can pretty much steal all your data. They can steal your passwords, you know, basically wreak havoc on your environment and do whatever they wanted to. Right, right. So it was, um, they got well and truly inside the, the castle walls. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. And what was your take on the, um, 
you know, on the on the election piece, right, with the Dominion, is that something you've looked into? Because I know generally that's been dismissed, but I've seen some people say, well, you know, perhaps there were some compromises. Is that something you've looked at? Or? Uh, I did read some papers on and some of the penetration tests or ethical hacking reports on the Dominion system. Uh, and all I can say is that, you know, I didn't test it myself or have my organization test it. But any system like that is highly prone to being attacked. Uh, if it has a USB port, uh, if it has a connection to the internet, it's highly likely that that system was compromised in some capacity. Now, do I know the extent of the compromise and if it affected the elections? I'm not sure, but uh, I'm sure there there were some compromises. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like it's a, a, a high risk strategy to have all this data out there to, to any degree. Right. I mean, computerized at all. Right. It's interesting. I know some European governments have just completely, you know, uh, dismissed the idea of having any kind of electronic form of counting or voting. Yeah, that's uh, one way to make it secure. Uh, anything that's uh, considered critical, uh, the minute you, uh, you know, touch it, connect it to the internet or connect it to something else or allow people to put uh, a thumb drive into it, it it's going to compromise the integrity of that system. Right, right. Right. Well, um, okay. So that feels like I've sated my curiosity around the, the, the cyber <laughs> piece of this, but um, let's, I'm sure we'll, we'll circle back to it, but let's, let's dive into this story. So the, the smartest person in the room, um, what, who does that refer to? <laughs> that, that refers to most people in, in cybersecurity that are highly technical. Uh, they want to be the smartest person in the room. And that's really what gives them significance is, is being smarter than other people. Uh, and that ultimately results in intellectual bullying and posturing. And the thing is, like, you know, I wrote the book about a lot of people I've, I've encountered, but the smartest person in the room used to be me, like, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. I was the one that, you know, was significant because I was, quote, smarter than everybody. So I would look for things to agree with rather than like listening for insight. And that really got to a point where it inhibited my career. And I think that is a, a, a sort of an epidemic really in our highly technical career fields because that's the thing that makes you significant is, is your intellect. And when that's challenged, uh, that, that causes issues. Right. And when was the, you know, what, what, what was that process for you in terms of the realization that this was an issue for you? Uh, I think the process was when I, when I, the process was really when I started my company in 2014, I founded Alpine Security. Uh, you know, I hired people, I had to train people and I started seeing a lot of problems with my, my personnel a lot of like talking over clients' heads because they wanted to show that they're smarter than the client, uh, talking over each other's heads internally, not playing well together. And that made me realize like, if I want to make an impact in cybersecurity with my organization, I need to shift this culture. And I had accepted it for a couple of years. Like this is just the way it is. But I realized like, there's gotta be a different way because I had one of my technical uh, engineers was telling me the results of what, a debrief to a client. And he told me that the client just didn't get it. And that was like kind of like a moment for me. Uh, I'd heard that many times throughout my career, but if the client just doesn't get it, then there's no way they can be secure. They don't, they're not going to understand the risk. They're not going to understand how to fix it. Uh, and it's our job to not, you know, try to feel super smart and talk over the client's head. It's our job to make sure the client or the board of directors or whoever we're talking to actually gets it. If that means changing the way we communicate, that's what we need to do. Right, right. Uh, and I guess, I guess when it came to seeing that your business might be on the line, it was time for you yes. to start to really pay attention, right? Yeah, it was, it was different when I was like working for somebody else. Like, oh, this is, this is a problem. But when it's my business and I funded the business and I could potentially lose everything, the uh, the necessity was much higher to figure this out. Yes, right, right. 
I mean, also, what also grabbed me in the story is leading up to the moment where you branched out to set up your own company, right? That in itself was a was a pivot point. It seemed like for you. Yeah, that was a pivot point. Um, I, I had I was working for a company for a couple years, and I was a, a VP, a vice president of the company, and I had was making a lot of money. I had all the sort of like external measures of success, but I, I was having like this kind of like difference of opinion with my my CEO, and it got to the point where I was like physically feeling uh, like ill about work and about the environment. I couldn't like let it go. So I decided to quit without having another job lined up. I decided at that moment that my well-being and my health and all that was more important than any amount of money in the world. It wouldn't have mattered if they offered me, you know, $100 million. I, I, I was certain I was leaving. And that was like a critical moment for me, a defining moment, because I, it was the first time in my entire career uh, that I did not have something lined up, another job. I'd quit with, with no plan, basically. And, you know, and I kind of mentioned this in the book, I had craved certainty throughout my whole life because uh, I didn't have it growing up. And this is like the first time like I had no certainty. I, I just had to figure things out, which, which I think is part of the journey. Uh, we we want to crave have certainty on the outside, on the external world, but the reality is certainty should come from within. And that's really what began my journey of like, I can figure these things out. And, and after that, I started freelance work and then started my company uh, several years later. Right. And, and when you say you didn't have a lot of certainty in your childhood, I mean, that sounds like an understatement, Christian. <laughs> well, it might be an understatement. I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know what other people's childhoods are like. I just know what my like was like. Well, tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously I've read the book, so I've got some idea, but yeah, for the listeners. Yeah, my childhood was very chaotic. Um, not a lot of certainty there. My, my, Mother uh, was a single mother, uh, and I had two half brothers. And we we lived in California for a while, but then we moved to Arkansas. And we moved to Arkansas. It's when like things started kind of going downhill. As far as my mother was addicted to pain medications, um, prescription pain meds, and that addiction just got kind of worse over time. And that meant like there, you know, it wasn't just that. It was there's weird people over at my house all the time. We lived in a trailer, very poor. Uh, welfare, uh, food stamps, um, WIC, which is where you get like a big block of government cheese and stuff like that. Uh, so there was, there's always like car accidents, um, you know, violence and, and just uh, loud music and people like, you know, I had a, my, a bedroom in my trailer, for instance, people that my mom would have over would break into my, I, I put a lock on my door, they'd break into my bedroom and steal my stuff. So it was really uh, very chaotic, and uh, I, I I didn't like the environment at all, really. Right, and you know, I said to this before we came on that I, I I'm just astounding. Not not only you know, just the fact that you're not like a drug addict or like a complete you know um, sort of um, mess in a sense, right? That I mean, it's extraordinary to me that you could grow up in that environment and become as successful as you are. It's is you know what. How do you account for that? Right? Because presumably a lot of the, the people you grew up with have not gone on to found cybersecurity companies and become successful authors. Hmm. Uh, I, for me, I, I knew something about that environment wasn't, uh, it didn't feel right. Uh, I, and I, I always, from the time I was very young, uh, I, I, I gathered a lot of like, um, energy or peace from like the outdoors from like being in nature so like when things were very chaotic i'd go in nature so i think you know that maybe helped ground me some um but really i i just i knew witnessing like the scenario with my mom and her friends that there was a lot of like partying and and the drug stuff and all that but ultimately if you like just looked at the scenario they weren't happy uh, this is just like an outlet, short-term thing to try to like be happy. But ultimately, my mother wasn't happy. She wasn't fulfilled. Her friends weren't happy. They weren't fulfilled. 
And I thought, you know, there's got to be something more to life than this because this does not look like a a happy existence or a fulfilling existence. And when I, you know, started thinking about from that perspective, uh, is really when I I started looking at ways to uh, get out of the environment. You know, which meant uh, picking different friends. Um, I lived with my grandparents when I was a a senior, so I had a little more stability, so I could focus on on school and on sports and getting accepted into, uh, you know, the Air Force Academy, which is where I ultimately went. So I, I looked at my circumstances as like, what can I do to set myself up for success despite, you know, this environment? Because if I end up in this environment, which is what I thought, I'm going to be, uh, you know, living the same pattern, which, you know, it doesn't look very fulfilling. Right. So it seems to me that you were imbued with an awful lot of wisdom at a very young age to, to see, to have that perspective. Yeah, I don't know if it's wisdom. It's, it's probably some, some of that. I think we all know if we like tune into our feelings and, and, and really sit with ourselves, I think we have a sense of what's right and what's wrong and, and what you know, feels right to us. Uh, and it's also, I was very competitive. I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty competitive, but um, then you know, in high school and in middle school and growing up, I was very competitive, extremely competitive. So I wanted to be the best at everything I did. That's, that's where I got my significance. Uh, so if I played football, I wanted to be the best at football. I did play football. If, you know, in, in academics, I wanted to be the best in that too. And that served me because it got me uh, a scholarship ultimately to the Air Force Academy and the other military academies. Um, and it served me for a long time in my career, trying to be, you know, extremely competitive. I didn't like people telling me I couldn't do something, you know, and, and it really, you know, I lived, I grew up in a small town, like 5,000 people. So everybody knew my story with my mom and my brothers and the situation it was embarrassing, but it's also like from that competitive nature, I felt like all these people have this like view of what's going to happen to me probably and what I can't do and what I'm not going to be able to do. And I wanted to prove people wrong. Right. And that can be an enormous motivator for people, can't it? Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I'm going to defy your expectations of me. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. And and it sounds like you ch- you channeled so much of you know I suppose that energy and for for what was going on for you at home into that competitive drive and to, yeah, uh, I definitely uh d- definitely channeled that and I think also uh, you know I was very frustrated with my scenario in um, growing up. And and I played football and sports. And I think from a healthy outlet uh, to relieve that frustration, uh, you know, football was definitely a good one for me because, you know, you're, you're, you could run and hit the other, the people on the team, like it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a, not a violent sport, but there's physical sport. Right. So I think having that outlet was very useful as well. I I don't think a lot of people have an outlet like that and then it surfaces in other ways that are um, not so good for them. Right. Right. And then, okay, so, you, so you're highly competitive. You get this, the scholarship. You want to be top gun, right? <laughs> yes. That's right. I, I watched the movie Top Gun. I wanted to be like Tom Cruise. <laughs> except, except for the Air Force, not the Navy. <laughs> right. And, and you didn't, but you did, you did get in, um, right, into the Air Force, but not, you didn't become Tom Cruise, or at least a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't become Tom Cruise. I, yeah, I got accepted to the Air Force Academy. I, I applied for uh, every scholarship I could find in every uh, military academy. I, I chose the Air Force Academy. Uh, the senior year of, of high school, the last game, I tore like three of the four ligaments of my knee. So I lost the scholarship because uh, I was no longer physically qualified. So I had to work like extremely hard to rehabilitate my knee. And I got qualified to go to the Air Force Academy again and also qualified to become a pilot. But then when I graduated, uh, they cut all the pilot slots, basically. So uh, I would have to wait to reapply. And and the chances were slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. So I just decided to forget the pilot um, business and uh, go into communications and electronics, which is what I did. Right. Right. And uh, and you you got into security of networks and and that started your career is that right 
Yeah, I was a communications officer and I started off, you know, managing from an IT perspective, looking at, uh, you know, managing an IT systems branch. And then we also had to worry about security, obviously, because we had, you know, we're the, the U.S. Air Force and we have like classified data and stuff like that as well. Right. I'm just to have interest. So how sort of active was that be? You know, what is the level of interest in, you know, getting into the, the U.S. military networks? Is it, do, do people, are people trying constantly or is this what's the, I mean, what, give us a sense of that. Yeah, people are trying uh, constantly to get into the U.S. networks, uh, especially nation state actors, um, other countries. Uh, and there's been like major data breaches of U.S. and government organizations like the um, Office of Personal Management. Uh, that was uh, a major breach where basically anybody that had uh, a, cla- uh, a clearance, they, they're, they're, anyone that was able to access classified information, their records were stolen, which is basically like everything about that person, their contacts, all their dirty laundry. Uh, you know, because you, if you go through a clearance process, you have to like disclose of everything you've ever done. Plus their medical records were stolen. So everything has been stolen. And it's just a matter of time, like when this stuff is going to resurface in some sort of attack. Right. Um, and so, and so you're, and, and that's, you're just constantly presumably monitoring how these attacks are happening, trying to develop tools to stay one step ahead. And is, is that the game? Like what, what's, what's the nature of the warfare, I suppose? Yeah. The nature of the warfare is, um, basically, uh, the U S in military installations or government installations has a room where they're watching the perimeter and all the attacks come in, you know, that people's job is to watch what's coming in and figure out how to respond to it, figure out if it's like, you know, just an automated bot looking for vulnerability, if it's actually an attacker group trying to, you know, carry out a specific objective. Uh, That's their job to monitor that and figure out how to respond to it. Right. And, and that's what you, that, that was, that was your life, right? For, um, all your time in the military. Yeah, is, yeah. Is that, yeah. Basically, my most of my time in the military was cybersecurity, cybersecurity exercises, uh, traveling to different installations, helping them secure their environments. Um, yeah, and I was a contractor for a while and worked in different agencies for the government as well. Right. And when you say exercises, is that where you'll you'll like simulate attacks or pay people to try and get in? I mean, how does that? How do the exercises work? Yeah, so the exercises, uh, we did a number of exercises, but one of the things I did was develop scenarios. Uh, and a scenario, would, we would come up with a scenario, like if I were an attacker, this is what I would carry out against your environment. And the idea is we would see if somebody was prepared to respond. Uh, an example would be, uh, like this was quite a few, quite a few years ago, um, we did an example where an attacker compromised all the cell phones in an area and all the a number of computers and called 911 from all of them. Well, the idea was if they could overwhelm the 911 system, uh, then they could maybe carry out something else as an example and to see if somebody was prepared for that. Another example, this is a fairly simple one, was uh, what if we like try to log on three times to everybody's account on a military installation and there's like 10,000 accounts and every one of them is locked out and the organization has to have the user call them to unlock their account. Now you've got 10,000 people trying to call uh, to get their accounts unlocked, uh, which proved that even though this sounded like a great idea to implement this account lockout policy, it could actually be used to your detriment by an attacker. Right. Okay. That's interesting. And in terms of that work, to the extent that you could disclose it, what was your pr- your proudest moment then of your of your time in the the services uh my my hmm, I, I think my proudest moment was some of the uh the exercises we did we did exercises that were uh sort of like multi uh, service um so air force navy uh, army you know they're joint exercises basically from a cyber perspective and some of those were very eye opening and, and i and i helped develop some of the scenarios for that so is an example of like what would happen if an Air Force base attacks a Navy institute, you know, a naval yard, and 
if the Navy blocks the Air Force Base, then they can't communicate. So things like that and figuring out how to make us you know, more resilient and stronger uh, to cyber attacks, uh, I'm pretty proud of that, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Now, something we've both got in common, Christian, is Landmark Forum, right? Which, for yes. those who are not aware, really with it, it's a, I suppose it's a, well, it's a self-development program. Uh, it certainly has its detractors. It, uh, it's pretty intense. Yeah, tell me, yeah, tell me how Landmark ended your life and, and where it fits into, into this story. Yeah, so I've done a lot of personal development throughout my life. I've uh, done quite a few Tony Robbins events. Uh, I have done other things as well, uh, John Maxwell. But I remember uh, at this Tony Robbins event, I always like to talk to people about, you know, what sort of shaped their life or what was a, a critical moment in their life. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said the Landmark Forum was one of the best things he went to. So I sort of added it to my list, right? And then uh, when I add things to my list, sometimes I go research it, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to make it happen. So I found a date. I think I was going to Hawaii for like a vacation and there was a class in LA. Like I thought, well, I'll go to, I'll go to this landmark forum course in LA and then I'll go to Hawaii afterwards. So that was my plan. So I went to the course in LA and um, yeah, it was like, I thought the Tony Robbins like uh, unleash the power within and some of the other courses like date with destiny were intense. The landmark forum was, was way more intense than the other ones. So, so intense, so much so that I, you know, I, 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 I realized to get the most out of these events, you're going to be uncomfortable. But I was so uncomfortable now, and I was like, you know what? I don't know if this is for me. I wanted to like leave as soon as the first break, you know, and not come back. But I stuck, I stuck it out though. Right. And uh, when you say intense, what kind of intense? Uh, intense where the 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 person leading the course was very good. Like you couldn't get much past her. Uh, like, like a lot of people would challenge her uh, if she would say something and she was very good about, you know, putting it back on the person that was challenging them because ultimately in life, we, we tend to find things in others that is really within ourselves. Right. So it's like, the, the world's a mirror of, of ourselves, right? And that's what right, Landmark that Forum... One, point, one, <laughs> one, point, one finger pointing out, four fingers pointing back at you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, it was very intense because there's a lot of intense discussions and there's a lot of group exercises and there's a lot of people that were, uh, you know, they, they, they highly encourage you to come up and, and share uh, something about, you know, your, your back, your childhood or whatever that was relevant to what they were talking about. And, uh, you know, I went up there and shared something. Uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, um, very uncomfortable for me. And do you mind asking what you shared? Yeah, I, I, sh <laughs> I shared this, uh, story. So when I was in California, I, you know, I, I, there was a lot of chaos there as well. And, and and I think a lot of a lot of our things that manifest as adults come from childhood trauma or something that happened more before the age of seven, typically. So in in California, uh, my my mother sent me to uh, school on a Saturday one day. Uh, so I went, you know, I walked to school, and uh, there was no crossing guard there. There's always there was used to cross, you know, there's always a crossing guard there. I was like I was like in kindergarten or whatever. Uh, so I came back, but there was like this loud music playing in my house. And I just got the sense that my mom just like wanted me away from the house so she could do, uh, you know, whatever she wanted to do with her friends. So I ended up going to the park, uh, and I went to the park and I hung, the, hung out the park all day. Like there's a park fairly close. And I just remember sitting there and like, there's these ducks and these geese and the wind and, you know, that, that gave me solitude. So like, I've always loved nature and I've always felt like at peace with nature. And I, and at that moment, you know, for me was difficult to talk about then because it was almost like admitting that my mom probably thought I was a burden and a hassle. Uh, so I really wasn't, you know, I was sort of welcome, but not really back. Um, so that's why I spent the time at the park, but it also gave me the understanding, I guess, of why 
I get so much energy and, and, and solace from, you know, being in nature as well. Right. And so it's a, it's a moment of, I'm going to help you make sense. Is that right? Yeah. It did help connect a lot of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And in terms of what uh, post the forum, then did it, what, what, what shifted externally? Did, did anything happen? Yeah. Ultimately, it's a landmark forum, and, and I highly recommend the landmark forum. Uh, you need to be committed to your personal development because it's, it's going to be a little bit challenging. But ultimately, what the takeaway is, at least it was for me, is that life is, is meaningless. There is no meaning to life. Like, there's no inherent, inherent meaning to life. The only meaning to things that happen to you and experiences is the one you attach to it. So, like, that scenario with my mother or my childhood, I can attach a meaning to that that doesn't serve me. Like, you know, and I did for a long time of my life. I was like resentful and bitter. And I was like, you know, I wish I had a different childhood. But the reality is that wasn't helping me at all. Uh, And the meaning of life is like, whatever you make it. So why not attach something, a meaning to an event or your past that serves you? And and this is what happens in the landmark form as well. I shifted my, um, you know, my meaning of what I attached to my childhood from that resentment uh, and wishing it was different and wishing it was stable. I shifted it to, you know, my mother was probably doing the best she knew how to do. I think we're all doing the best we, we, we can with the resources we're, we're given. Uh, and, and I also shifted from like, I probably wouldn't be where I am today without my childhood because my childhood gave me that drive because so I was so like determined to get out of there it sort of forced me to get better at a lot of things so when I shifted that way is you know you I basically sort of I'm grateful that my childhood was the way it was otherwise it, if it was easier or different I may not have turned out the way I did right so it gave you a different perspective on your childhood mm-hmm and how yeah. do you find that? And, and have you shared any of this with your mother or with your siblings? Uh, well, my mother uh, basically OD'd about uh, 10 years ago. So I, I never got a chance to really come full circle with her on that. And my two brothers, um, I haven't really talked to them about it either. One of them has been in and out of jail. And uh, the other one, I, I should probably make an effort to talk to more so. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yes, I did it as well. And it was, um, I, I, yeah, I, I think for me, it was, I had a slightly different experience. I didn't pick up so much on that idea of making your own meaning. It was, it was more the mirror that it held up. Right. Yeah. It showed me who I was and it really showed me where my dysfunctions were. And <laughs> I, I couldn't escape them. Um, it's very good at that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fewer. Yeah. I think so. I think what you're saying about commitment is is so true, right? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> just what what because what's the first the first session is like an evening and two days if it's still the same format. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's right. The Friday evening and then it goes through to the Sunday, doesn't it? And you, yeah, that's going to be a pretty intense experience for most people. Yeah, uh, it, it was intense, but uh, I'm I'm glad I went through it. Yeah. Yeah, because when you realize, uh, like you said, the mirror that you, you tend to look, you know, whatever you see in others is typically because your own model of the world, your own filter, and so it's really you uh, reflecting back through other people. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And I, the, the the story I think I might have shared this on the show before, but it's when I turned up to a because I don't know if you continued with it, but I continued with it where you do these volunteer sessions where you get on oh. the phones and you call people up, right? I didn't do that, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, which is which is one of the reasons they got banned in France because you don't get paid for that. And I think France saw it as some sort of form of slave labor or something, so they got banned. That's <laughs> the, so the story goes. Uh, so anyway, but yeah, this guy t- t- turned me away because I was hung over, right? And I was like, me, the the great Richard Atherton, you know, hung over and can't <laughs> do your shitty sales job. Uh, so it just showed up my grandiosity, you know, the fact I had an alcohol problem, you know, a whole bunch of stuff was just, you know, came 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 to the service from this guy just basically telling me to go home. Um, wow. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, that was a, that was a big moment. But 
yeah I'd, I'd certainly recommend it for people who are you know ready to be given some potentially some shock treatment yeah i i, th- I think it, it would benefit everybody uh it, it makes you realize that we, you know we're really uh in charge of more than we think we are i think too many people live their life thinking this is just the way it is and i have no choice we, we always have a choice yeah yeah exactly and it starts with some form of reflection i think doesn't it i mean i think that's probably maybe common to our experiences here yeah, and yeah. we have to make time for reflection. And that, that that's something that I have I struggle with today is I'm pretty busy. Uh, so I need to make sure I, I schedule time in my day or at least my week to just kind of sit back, turn off my devices and think about, you know, where I am, where I want to go, what, you know, recurring pattern I, I keep living that's not serving me and and how to how to how to make make that change basically, make that shift. All right. Okay, now let we we we've it's taken us a while, but let's get to the, <laughs> the content of the book. We've given we've given the the, the backstory here. Uh, so we've got this. Is it is it one two three four? I'm just looking at those five six. It is eight, right? There are eight facets to this. Um, I suppose me- method uh, around getting to the root root cause and solution for cybersecurity. So, uh. <sighs> Yeah, I guess give us, well, give us the, the perhaps the overview of this approach. Uh, maybe we can, you know, pick up on a couple of the, the practices or, or things that are, you know, most useful for people in, in the realm of cybersecurity. Yeah, so I, I came up with this, this uh, thing I call the secure methodology, which is seven steps. Seven. Uh, and, I was wrong. I can't count. That's okay. <laughs> seven right now. Let me add an eighth later, but yeah, there's seven right now. Uh, and they're they're in order uh, because I think as you go through these steps, you, you you the first one's awareness. You have to have some awareness, for instance, before you can start working on your communications and communication step four. So I put them in order uh, because it logically, from my perspective, makes sense for the for you to progress to them in the order I I presented them. But the idea is if, you, if you're a technical leader and you go through these steps, uh, you know, the awareness, the, the mindset, uh, the acknowledgement, I have all these, you know, these different steps in there. If you go through these steps, it'll help you improve your leadership abilities so you can lead your technical team better. And then you can also help train your technical team on these seven steps as well. Um, and you could take each step individually and like try to, improve in that one area like one of the steps i have is uh monotasking as example and in in society we've been we've been taught to multitask and multitasking uh basically it it doesn't really help us at all we we like to believe that we're really busy we multitask but the bottom line is we're not being very productive and then also when we're talking to somebody a lot of us are on our phone we're thinking about something else we're not present uh, which is like monotasking for present, it enhances our ability to communicate and connect with people as well. Right, right. So the, I, the notion I, I is you take... Go yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say that with the monotasking, that really rung true for me because right now on Zoom calls, you know, most of my life is on Zoom calls and it's so much easier to <laughs> cheat, right, on a Zoom call. You could be checking your emails or doing stuff, turn your camera off, but you can in a physical <laughs> meeting. So it's, I've really had to up my game to stay pre- present or to monotask, as you say, to be like, no, I'm on this Zoom call. I'm turning every notification off. I'm just going to focus on this Zoom call and stay present. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that is so true. Today, it's it's much easier. And I, and I find myself doing it, too. I'm not perfect to these seven steps, uh, but I, I have a lot of meetings. Uh, and sometimes if the meeting is boring, I'll... <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll turn my camera off and I'll do something else, which is not monotasking. You know, so right now I'm definitely monotasking. This is not boring, but yeah, it's something to always keep in mind. <laughs> but right, if everybody's right. doing that in the meetings, like, what is the purpose of the meeting? Nobody is paying attention. I feel like that on some Zoom meetings, that's the way it is these days. <laughs> right, exactly. Or there's just like a couple of people getting some value out of it. Everybody else is just <laughs> passive. But what I find as well is if I stay present and I stick with it, eventually i'm sort of forced to try and shift the meeting in a productive direction right um I, it forces me to make some kind of inter- intervention if i can to um to actually have it give me some value so that, do, that is uh, very true I, i'm the same way so if i am present and i try to be present in the meetings 
if it's getting derailed rather than checking out and like checking my email or something, I'll, I'll like interject something and try to get back on track. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose particularly for technical, um, I, you know, cause, cause some of my backgrounds in, uh, in, you know, in, in I started as a programmer and so my, my background is, is technical and I think it's I think it's true for all human beings but especially for perhaps especially for technical people we've always got oh you know there's this thing right I've got to you know there's there's always there's always some excuse you can say oh, I've got to get this out by this deadline or <laughs> I think I find I, I, or I or I'm just being pinged on it I find that you can you can sort of weave a story around how uh, everybody's depending on you much more easily. And that gives you a reason not to show up to things or not be present to things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That uh, helps uh, with your ego, helps you feel important. So that does happen a lot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do this because I've got, yeah, you know, I'm the only person who can solve this particular problem. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a, perhaps a flaw obviously of technically minded personalities is, you know, to try and create that world for themselves. Yeah. I mean, like everybody, you know, there's these six human needs and most people crave uh, significance and certainty that the top two most people have. And with highly technical people, uh, they want to feel needed. Uh, they want to feel like they're smarter than everybody and that their intellect is, is what, what is required. And, and, and they get the certainty because if they are needed and they feel like, there's a demand for them at, at, at their work, then, you know, there, there's a certainty there as well. Right. Right. And of these seven steps, Christian, which, which, which do you wrestle with the most? Hmm. Re, I, I wrestle with two, uh, probably the most, one of them is acknowledgement. Uh, I, I believe in, in acknowledgement, you have to be able to acknowledge yourself before you can acknowledge others. And with cybersecurity and just in humans in general, we often have trouble acknowledging somebody else. So for me, you know, I've done like a lot of Ironman triathlons. I've done a lot of things that are hard, but I've, I've had trouble acknowledging myself, like saying that was a pretty cool thing I did or that was difficult. I tend to like always look forward to the next thing and say, okay, I did that next thing. Never like take a moment and celebrate or acknowledge. I did take, I'm getting better. So like when my book hit like number one bestseller uh, launch week, you know, I, I, I took some downtime and celebrated. Uh, but, but part of me was like, you know what? I made number one in my category. Now I want to make number one in all of Amazon. So I'm going to try to make that happen. So I was like, it's a never-ending cycle. <laughs> that so wasn't you, really an achievement. <laughs> exactly. We did, I tended to diminish it. So anyway, um, when I, I got, got better at acknowledging myself, I could get better at acknowledging other people because everybody wants to be appreciated. For, and if you don't show appreciation, it, it's a frustrating scenario for other people. And then the other one is communication. Uh, this has been, uh, it's always a challenge, like in relationships or you know anything, communication, we can always get better at it. And understanding like what our triggers are is extremely important with communication. And with me, uh, this trigger has been coming up in the past, I don't know, throughout my whole life. In the past like month, it's been sort of spotlighted. Uh, this trigger where uh, if somebody asks me something, I'm assuming that they're asking me because I've done something wrong. So I automatically like get a little bit defensive. And sometimes they're not asking from that perspective, That, but my something happened in my childhood or whatever, where I, I respond in that way and it doesn't like help the scenario. So I'm trying, I'm, you know, I'm working on that. There's always something to work on. Right. And, and in terms of your teams, like, so that's you, what, as a, as a leader, like where do you find it most important to, you know, which of these steps do you find it most important to emphasize as a leader of others? I think as a leader, it's the awareness is a big part of it. Uh, understanding that everybody has their own model of the world. Uh, and, and, I, and I struggle with this as well. I used to think, well, why can't everybody just be like me and do it this way, right? But not everybody's going to have the same view of things. And that's what, what the team is. If we're all the same, we're not going to have a very good team. So it's understanding like, the unique view of the world uh, that everyone brings to your collective team is what strengthens the team, actually. 
right. and being able to work Got with that as well. Yeah. Yeah, that hit me a little bit here, you know, when when you said that, because I, I, I've definitely fallen into that that trap. You know, I've, I've been a big evangelist for sort of agile, agile mesh, methods in, in management. And we've had a lot mm. of, sort of agile gurus on this, on this show, which I guess you're familiar with, you know, from your background. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I can all, often thought, you know, just why can't, why can't you just see that this is better, damn you? This is just <laughs> a better way to work. And you're dumb if you can't see it. Like <laughs> so often I've fallen into that and it's just such a counterproductive way of trying to persuade people or influence or communicate because it just doubles their resistance to it right that's right they, that, that they, method doesn't they... work too well <laughs> yeah yeah well I'm a, I'm a big fan of um you know i've studied nlp neuro-linguistic programming and one of the uh presuppositions is uh the meaning of, the meaning of communication is the response you get so if you're trying to tell somebody something and they're not getting it that's your that's your problem that you're not communicating well enough and if you understand right. the model of the, their world a little bit better, then it can shift your communication. This is the problem with cybersecurity as well. We tend to talk over people's heads and, 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 and people don't get it, but we have to be able to shift our communication because they need to get it. Otherwise, we're just getting frustrated the whole time. Right. Yeah, That's such an important message. Like it's not them who's not getting it. It's <laughs> you're not able to communicate it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's taking yeah. ownership of the communication, which... Uh, it can be frustrating, but it can also be a little bit liberating as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I can see why that's emerged in a book that's, you know, centered around technical leadership, because it's so easy for technical individuals to fall into that. You know, how can you not understand it? Because in, a, in your technical bubble, it, everything seems so obvious, doesn't it? It's easy to fall into that, but it's also been tolerated in, in cybersecurity. In the industry as a whole, it's been tolerated that you know, we're smart, the users are stupid, management's stupid, the board of directors stupid, uh, our clients are stupid. This is like this mindset and paradigm that's like been tolerated in the industry. And, it's, and it is part of the reason why we are where we are and why, like we talked about earlier, there's all these data breaches. Because if we're so smart as an industry, cybersecurity professionals, the outcome we should be seeking is to make sure there's less data breaches, less of our clients, our own internal customers, less less people are are hacked into. So the smartness is not really, you know, being intellectually smart is one thing, but not being able to like apply your total intelligence or or, or life skills to help a scenario uh, is another, and that's actually the more important thing. Right, right. Now that makes sense. Uh, and it also links, I don't know if you come across Jocko Willink. Yeah. Right. Read, He's another. Uh, extreme ownership. And I talked yeah. about that in my book a little bit. Yeah. 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 I'm a big, big fan because, of that. Yeah. But it, it reminds me of that extreme ownership in communication, right? It, it, yeah. It talks to this point. Like, if, if they're not getting it, I need to own that. Total yes. ownership, right? Upwards, downwards, sideways, uh, you know, in all aspects, including communication. Yeah. That's right. And, and I think, from one of the catalysts to write my book was, you know, I was a founder and CEO of my business uh, and I believe in ownership. So if there's something wrong with, with the business, uh, there's something wrong with me. I believe a business, we talked about a mirror a lot, right? I, I believe a, a business, if you're the owner of a business or the CEO, the business is a reflection of you. Right. So if the business is not doing well or the system systemic issues then that those are issues you are allowing to happen and you need to resolve those internally so they can be, you know, show up externally as well. Uh, so that mirror was always in front of me with that, when I owned my business. And when you have the ownership, it, it makes you realize like, you know, you know, it's not that employee's fault. It's my fault for hiring that employee or not training that person. So it's, it's a different perspective. Yeah. No. And it just reminds me of one of the people, the coaches I work with, with she's brilliant at this, you know, CEOs will call her in and say, Oh, look, mm -hmm. this is wrong. And this wrong. And this person's not doing it. And, and then she, and she'll, she'll just, you know, and how is all of that a reflection of you? Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's much easier to blame the outside world though, you know, but taking ownership is, is difficult. Yeah. Right. And that's a great book. Extreme ownership by Jocko uh, Willick and Alif Babin is a, it's awesome book. Yeah. Right. And that goes to both ex-military uh, as well. Yeah. Well, at least uh, jo uh, Jocko is. I don't know if... Uh, no, they both were. Yeah, they're both, yeah. both ex-seals, yeah. Oh, both ex-seals. Okay. Mm -hmm. Double seals. 
Yeah. Got to be on your toes for a seminar with those two, eh? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. Well, uh, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, Christian. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for being so open. Um, yeah, no problem. It, is there anything, you know, is there anything we've, we've kind of missed salient points from the book uh, you'd like to share for people who might be not more interested? I think we hit the, the seven steps secure methodology. That's, uh, you know, the main framework for the book. I, I, I didn't want the book to be theoretical. I wanted it to be applicable. So I have, you know, that seven step methodology and I have activities in there as well to try to uh, tie... Um, the concepts together and allow people to integrate the concepts. Um, and the book is, is it's focused around cybersecurity, but it's really a, a personal development book, but lever- leveraging my experience in cybersecurity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, w- I would say this, this book would be, you know, also, I think because the ideas were so familiar to me, having had a technical background, I think anybody with a technical background, a lot of this will resonate. And as you say, and, and of course, many of these concepts are just, you know, are just broad reflections on the human condition. So, yeah. yeah. And the book is not, uh, several people have told me they don't think they can understand the book. They, they make an assumption the book is filled with technical jargon, which is exactly what I'm talking is like a bad thing. So there's no technical jargon in the book at all. There's a couple things as an example of what not to do, uh, because if, if nobody can understand what we're talking about because it's too technical and that that's defeating the point uh so don't don't think the book is full of technical jargon that's the other thing i want to yeah. you know it's it's yeah. very easy to read and digest yeah yeah absolutely and packed with stories uh yes <laughs> uh yeah so thank you um we'll put the links to the book uh and to your and to alpine security in the descriptions to the show okay um, awesome yeah. thanks once again yeah thanks richard i appreciate it Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.